Hey there, podcast listener. Welcome to Eat Half, Walk Double. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. This show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as a coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. What a great show I have for you today. My friend and coaching client, Holly Blaze, joins the podcast. Professionally, she's a behavior analyst, and athletically, she's primarily a runner, although she does remind me from time to time how much she loves riding gravel bike. This professional and personal combination of experiences gives her an incredibly unique perspective on the mental side of endurance sports. We dive into the concept of psychological flexibility, which she believes, and I agree, are incredibly important to the endurance athlete's positive experiences and healthy relationship with their sport. We also chat about the zipper effect, a concept I was unaware of before my show prep, but actually unknowingly have been using in my coaching practice. Well, without further delay, here she is, Holly Blaze. Hey, Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. I'm very excited to have you as a guest. Um, you, I think you have a really unique perspective on um, some of the mental aspects of endurance sports, um, both um, personally and professionally. So I'm, uh, I'm eager to explore that. Uh, I mean, I, I, we, we, we should say for, uh, for complete transparency uh, for the listener that you and I have worked together uh, in a athlete coach relationship since November of 2020. I think before that. Okay. So my, so my, my, my crack research staff then, uh, will have to circle back on that. Um, but the, but the truth is, uh, uh, we were training together. Yeah. Longer than that. Has it been longer than that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hired you. I had, if I could, I hired you, um, to I think it was late uh, 2017, early 2018, when I was trying to figure out how I was going to get to bo- run Boston in 2018 after getting a severe injury running in the White Mountains and was really concerned that I'd never reach potentials that I had previously recovering from that injury. And I felt like you might be the coach to help me get back to where I needed to be or wanted to be. So, it, but check your, check, check your records. Yeah. My, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going to fire somebody on my research <laughs> staff when, when I, when we finish this episode, uh, of course, truth is I don't have a research staff. I have zero budget when it comes to this podcast. So that's, that's totally on me. You talk to the dog. Um, <laughs> Either way, uh, you and I have some some mm-hmm. history together, and so uh, so um, that that's important for the listener to to, to understand as we're having this conversation. Um, you, you and I have had the good fortune to work together uh, for some for some time now. Um, so personally, you are an endurance athlete. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Boston Marathon. Um, 
So, and you have participated in uh, in events of varying distances, varying surfaces, um, uh, but but professionally, you, you also have, a, as I said earlier, you you have a you have a unique perspective. Um, you're a behavior analyst. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, for the listener, and and actually, truthfully, for me as well, because <laughs> I, I actually haven't technically uh, looked up what a behavior <laughs> analyst is. You and I have talked about it before, mm -hmm. but I'm not really quite sure what mm -hmm. it is. But can you can you can you describe to the to the listener what a behavior analyst is and what a behavior analyst does? Uh, that's a loaded question. Um, behavior analysis is a pretty uh, big field, a fairly new field, but a big field. Um, what behavior analysts typically do generally is look at skills, look at skill sets, look at uh, areas of learning and break. We look at things from a behavioral perspective. So learning is behavior. Everything is behavior. How do we break those things down into smaller segments to help people learn? Um, behavior analysts work in fields like coaching. They work in fields like mental health. They work in fields um, uh, organizations, they work in leadership, they work as teachers, they work as speech therapists, they work in met, uh, every field is going to have some um, aspect of it that is related to behavior analysis. And technically, my history is more with um, diversity of learners. Um, and so more of an education. Um, and it's really just taking a look at complex things, which are humans, and figuring out how to help them meet their goals and meet their um, potential in, in various ways. Um, and then there's just some technology. We call it technology. It's just sort of tools in our toolbox that we use to try to help people learn. Um, yeah, but it's really about helping people, groups, societies meet their full potential. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm I'm curious to, to kind of pick up on that uh, description of a behavior uh, analyst. Um, again, you you and I have had the opportunity to work together for mm -hmm. uh, for some time now. Um, as a behavior analyst, if if someone were to ask you about my coaching services, um, how would you how would you describe my approach to coaching? Uh, from a behavior analyst standpoint, I mean, it's hard. In other words, it's hard for you not to analyze things with without that hat on because that's what you do professionally. It's a yes. Yeah, it's right. It's a lifestyle too. So, uh, so, so how? You know, again, you and I, we we've had the 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 good fortune to work together for some time now. How would you describe my coaching services to someone that might ask you, what what does Chris do and how does he do it? So, I think even when I first started working with you, I felt that you were approach to coaching, um, even from just using training peaks and using colors and the feedback systems are all sort of systems that behavior analysts would use to shape behavior over time. So in ways, coaching and your coaching specifically, because that's what I know, um, is very much you're like a budding behavior analyst without knowing it. Um, <laughs> And, you know, you take a lot of data in, you analyze that data, you figure out where to kind of push somebody, maybe come back a little bit. Um, you know, what hill are you going to die on to give feedback in a particular way? When are you going to get tough? When are you going to kind of pull back? Um, just color coding workouts like nailed it, not quite there. Like all of those systems shape people's behavior. 
Um, so for me, when I when I started going through your training plans, I could see my own behavior changing as it related. Like so when we first started working together, I didn't I didn't do strength works. Like I was like, eh, I'm a runner. I don't need that stuff. But then building it in and then building some reinforcement systems around with the colors and the feedback allowed it, it just shapes your behavior without you knowing it. That's behavior analysis. So your systems kind of do that. Um, you also, I think early on when we worked together, started pulling in a lot of um, mental training. So along with being a behavior analyst, I also consider myself what's called an act practitioner or somebody who studies acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and those, it's still behavior analysis. It's just sort of a different um, uh, aspect of behavior an analysis. It uses behavior analytic things within the framework of mental thinking or thinking and um, how thoughts and feelings interact with your behaviors. And I just found that your uh, mental work or training very much aligned with with those things as well, which I really appreciated. It was just taking what I do and turning it into something else. Because as a behavior analyst, I truly believe that if you're really a, a good behavior analyst, it's going to be a lifestyle. It's not what you do to people. It's how you live your life. And I, I feel like you model a lot of that as well. Like I read this, I did this. So I did this myself first. And now I want to bring it to you and share with you what I've learned. And I believe that same thing. I don't do the behavior analysis on people. It's it's a lifestyle and it's how I run my life. And so I, I really appreciated that about how you provided coaching, um, even when sometimes your feedback ticks me off. <laughs> Well, if I'm if I'm not if I'm not bending people a little bit, right? I'm probably I'm probably not doing my job, right? It can't. But I think that's the good part about that's that's part of the beauty of your coaching is that it it can't all be sunshine and roses all the time. Your your behavior is not going to be shaped. You're not going to reach your fullest potential if you're just getting kudos and and pats on the back all the time. And I think that that's a real misperception about what behavior analysts do is that, oh, we just, we just either we're punishing people too much or we're reinforcing too much and it's not reality. And it's like, nope, there, we've got to all learn how to take feedback, positive and negative feedback or critical feedback to shape behavior in a, in a positive direction uh, to meet our fullest potential. Cause the world is not all sunshine and roses. All the time. Yeah. It's just not. Well, and I, and I think the, I think the challenge for for coaches is to is to treat the athlete as an individual, mm -hmm. um, right? I mean, we. I mean, I, I think we. It's important when when you when you manage a number of people at one time that that you have a system, because it's it's just easier if mm -hmm. if you have a system to follow. In other words, one system rather than 50 or 100 different systems that have to individually be applied. Yet, yet within these systems, I think there, there needs to be individual flexibility. So the, the reality is that, um, uh, that the specific ways in which I approach each athlete or client is a little bit different mm -hmm. um, because not everybody, not everybody needs or wants the same things at the same time. Right. I mean, is that is that generally true of of behavior analysts with, you know, and, and working with and working with clients? You're working with humans. We're, we're all <clears throat> extremely unique and we all bring different things to the table. And 
I, you know, I 100% appreciate the idea of having systems. I have systems too. Like, you know, there's there's a framework to what I like to do that I'm comfortable with because it just eases the process. But then it's always about the person that's in front of me and always about what that person's goals are, what that person's needs are, what that person wants from their life. Um, and that that because we are also humans as coaches or as a behavior analyst, we have to practice a lot of the, this work on ourselves, too, to make sure that we're not we're not um, we're not putting our agenda ahead of somebody else's. That's a very tricky balance um, to to have to do. Um, but if you if you know your clients and you get to know them on a deeper level, you I think you can find you find that how to how to do that in a unique in a unique way. And so people feel like they're getting the personal touch, even if somebody else has a similar plan. Like I can line my plan up with somebody else. And oh, this, I've got the same workout as you do. But there's probably, you probably have different expectations or potential outcomes that you might be hoping to get from the two people. And those two people are never going to have the same experience in that, um, during that workout. Mm. Right. Because it, I mean, everybody is, everybody is bringing a different experience to the experience. Right. Uh, right? And they're, um, and their understanding of the experience is colored by past and previous experiences. Yeah. You know, everything that you that, that you describe to me uh, sounds like flexibility, sounds mm -hmm. like the, the ability to apply different things at different times. Um, in fact, y you and I have talked in the past about this concept of psychological flexibility mm -hmm. um, and the importance of psychological flexibility uh, for, for endurance athletes. Well, quite frankly, the, the importance of psychological flexibility for everyone. Life. Um, <laughs> right, for life. Um, I, I, I know you've, um, you've, you've given um, presentations on psychological mm -hmm. flexibility yeah. to, uh, to civic groups. It's something you're asked to do from time to time. Um, and, um, so I'm, uh, what I'd like you to do, uh, Holly, is I'd, I'd like you to, to talk a little bit about this concept of psychological flexibility. Okay. Um, you know, what, what is it first of all, and then wh why, why is it important? Why is it potentially important for endurance okay. athletes? This is a big, it's a big topic, but it's one that I, is like near and dear to me. Um, so psychological flexibility is a sort of overarching framework um that conceptualizes how people behave as it relates to their kind of internal thoughts and feelings um and at any given moment we are having thoughts that impact our behavior and if we have good psychological flexibility we're able to make values guided choices around what behavior to engage in. So are we going to engage in behaviors that move us closer to who we want to be in our lives and who we see ourselves as? Maybe that has to be a particular athlete um, or hit a particular goal or um, be a better mother or be a coach or be whatever it is. Like, does this behavior as it relates to the relationship with my thoughts and feelings take me closer to that or is it going to pull me away? Um, am I going to shut down and hide in my room because I didn't have the workout I wanted to? Or am I going to go, hey, that was a crappy workout. 
what can I learn from it? Um, taking the moment to learn from it is more likely going to help us move closer to becoming a better athlete. Also probably a better human because just building those habits over time end up translating into engaging in that all the time. Um, so it's really just mentally, it's that, it's that mental practice of being in the moment and making a decision with your behavior to move in a, in a positive direction, go to the gym when you don't want to go to the gym. Right. I think that's one thing like that's that in particular is something that I, I think in your comments, a lot of times you'll, you'll comment about that. Like, you know, keep, keep doing it, you know, even when you're not doing it. I mean, you always have a great way of kind of saying it um, <clears throat> in general, psychological flexibility as a concept can get really nerdy in the, in the terminology, but sometimes it's important to kind of know what the different um, components are. So there's like these six um, kind of pillars uh, or six core processes that go into um, psychological flexibility. Um, yeah, like let's, yeah, let's talk. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. talk a little bit about. Let's talk a little bit about them. Can you, yeah. uh, can can you can you give us the six uh, yeah. as a as a list, and then let's let let's go through each each area mm -hmm. individually and talk about mm -hmm. uh, talk about how. Well, let's let's talk about how um, uh, how each uh, each process um, uh, uh, is applied, okay. and then um, maybe let's talk a little bit a little bit about. Um, how unknowingly I have sort of been t tapping into some of these without really, cause I had, yep. you know, honestly, before, um, before you, before you, you brought this concept up to me, I, I had never heard of it. I'm, obviously I'm not classically trained in, in sports psychology or, or, or behavior. I'm an exercise physiologist. Uh, and yet, you know, through time and experience, I have kind of, you know, sort of developed my approach uh, to coaching. Uh, and as it turns out, interestingly enough, I, I'm actually using, I think all six of these processes. Mm -hmm. So I want, I'd like to talk a little bit about each individually, but, but gi give us the, give us the six, uh, core processes as okay. a list from one to six. So there's acceptance, diffusion, self as context, present moment awareness, which is mindfulness. I prefer to use present moment awareness. Um, and we could talk about why, uh, values, or values guided action, and then com or committed action. Sorry, so values and then committed action. Sometimes those get these processes get like overlapped. So it's great to know about their individual ones, but they're they're so interrelated, it they overlap. Hmm. So so this i this idea of being uh, psychologically flexible hmm. means means using one of the six means using half of the six, all of the six, like how, what, like how, how does this li list of six apply to this concept of psychological flexibility? In other words, for me to be psychologically flexible, is it important? Is it important for me to, to understand and to implement all six? So the first step to developing your psychological flexibility is to not to overthink psychological flexibility. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just think about, something I got to work on. Just, just think about that the behavioral response of just attempting to grab a hold of it and have to know. We as human beings are have this have this uh, desire, and I I think it's it's almost like a, a, 
problem in the matrix where it's <laughs> we've got to understand the thing completely in its totality and we have to have it like so locked up and clear to actually be able to know that we're doing the thing exactly how we're supposed to do it and the whole point of being psychological flexibility is being able to accept you might not know and that you can sit with that you can sit with that emotion like think about that emotion and say all right i'm having this thought that i don't really understand this concept and what does that tell me about it, it tells me that i'm curious but i don't know something and I want to know it because my values tell me I'm, I'm curious and this might enhance my coaching. So if I know more about it, then maybe I can understand. But the, the process of psychological flexibility in of itself is really to just accept that I don't really 100% know it, at least. And again, I have to work on this as well because I'm, I'm not a published researcher, PhD level bcba or PsyD, like that's not my background either so i have to really work on this too but it's it's that ability to kind of sit with the unknown and engage in your behavior that i'm going to go forward with curiosity to discover what's on the other side of me not knowing mm. so that's a which that's... is a whole thing that you with your endurance athletes do all the time mm. all the time just it's not about knowing right now and having the answer right now it's about sitting in the not knowing and recognizing that that's a really cool place to sit and that by allowing yourself to sit there you're going to start to move towards new discoveries about yourself and like that it's like becoming who you are how do i become more about who i am and who i want to be so in that sort of sense you're you're developing to go back to the six core processes you're developing some acceptance around difficult thoughts and feelings. We love to like know and be and have the thing and difficult feelings are hard for us. Um, and I have a great story that kind of like that goes along with this with yeah, coaching please. that I'd love to share a little later. Um, and then diffusion is being able to step back from that and, and recognizing that we're not here to solve that problem. We're here to like accept and learn and grow and discover together. And it's not up to just you, you know, um, self as context is really separating yourself from your thoughts and your feelings um, and seeing yourself as it in, as a total human being. I'm not my failure. I'm not my success. I'm all of the things at all of those times and I can be all of those different things. And I'm very flexible with all of that. Um, and I can sit back and I can observe all that. It's a very hard thing for us to do too, to sit back as an observing self and, and really see where we are right now. And as I'm talking about these, you'll start to see how they all kind of go together. Like you just to, to be in a place where you can step outside of yourself and, and really observe yourself takes a lot of acceptance and letting go. It also takes that present moment awareness. So present moment awareness, being able to be in the, the very moment that you're in and just really be present um, and not mindfulness. I mean, sometimes I think people get really caught up in like mindfulness is, you know, meditation to two different things. Um, some of the stuff that has 
enhanced the development of like psychological flexibility does come more of that Eastern um, philosophy and those kinds of things. But we're really not talking about meditation. We're really talking about mindfulness. Um, you know, mindfulness, I think, became a lot more uh, popular when Eckhart Tolle sort of started to come about as being like a big thing that everybody was talking about about 20 years ago or so. Um, that's that's a lot of that mindfulness. How do I sit in this moment and be able to listen to the birds, know that kids are in the neighborhood, um, feel the breeze, feel the wind, feel everything that's happening right now and, and sort of engage with that um, and not judge it. Oh, those stupid kids are so loud. You know, like it just, it is what it is. Um, and then values is, I think is a really big one. I don't think we do enough of this in our societies to really look at what our values are, um, not goals. We're, we, we love goals. We love, we love to like have a goal, but it's, it's really values that drive how the method or the process that we're going to get to meeting our goals. If you don't have your values clarified, it's really hard to meet your goals in a way that's intrinsically motivating. If I want to be rich and I don't know what my value system is, I'm just going to go rob a bank because my values aren't guiding my decision. I just know I need some money. So why don't I go do that? So really being having some values clarification and then committed action, just being like, no matter in this moment, who am I going to be in the, who do I want to be or become? And what's that small step that I'm going to still go to the gym <laughs> It might be a crap workout, but I'm going to still engage in the action and the behavior because I'm committed to this process. And I know that just commitment to the process is in and of itself practice to meet my goals. Um, and so that's, again, I think the committed action, especially with endurance athletes, totally what it is. I mean, how many times does, does an endurance athlete wake up and they're like, my body is not working anymore. I can't possibly do this. Um, so that's that's another one that comes up for me a lot. But again, it's really hard to like go, oh, I just do this and I just do this aspect. Mm -hmm. It's really all of those things. And at any given moment, you might be pulling from one of those places, but it's being able to bounce, bounce around. Sometimes, I don't know if you've found this with your clients, but like when I work with students or I work with teachers or staff, I try to... I, I can sometimes see where there's a weak point in the processes. And sometimes I might start with the weak point. I often will start with, for students in particular, I will start with values um, above and beyond anything else. Um, and even with teams of teachers, I'll start we'll start with values. And I don't know if that's the same with, with athletes. Um, I do think as an endurance athlete myself, my values absolutely guide my actions, especially when you're not a professional athlete. If that's, that's the other piece of it, you're not coaching professional athletes. This is not it's true. Endurance sports is not my lifestyle, but it is, but it's not, it's not, it's not everything, right? It's part of who you are, right? But, it, but it's always framed in the context of your, of your family life and your work life. And that's and that's a big reason why uh, family and work 
are two conversations that I always have uh, yeah. with with my clients uh, when we get on our monthly calls. Well, I, I'd like to I'd like to go back through um, each of these processes systematically and talk a little bit more about um, examples of how they might apply to to endurance athletes, um, and 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 um, maybe give you a, a little bit of of my take uh, how I have uh, approached uh, each of these. You know, starting starting with acceptance. Um, you, you know that the text, uh, The Rock Warrior's Way by Arnold Ilgner uh, is an important textbook. Not really a textbook. It's an important book. But to me, it's like a textbook. Um, but The Rock Warrior's Way is a, is a, is a fundamental, foundational manuscript mm -hmm. for um, actually how I approach my own life, um, personal uh, life, and, and also professionally how I approach uh, coaching. Um, in, in the rock, in the rock warriors way is, I mean, it's technically a mental training guide for rock climbers. Um, yet the, the principles in the rock warriors way, I, I think apply to all endurance athletes. Quite honestly, the, the principles apply to, to, to people outside of endurance sports mm -hmm. as well. But, um, the, there is actually one of the chapters of the Rock Warriors way is, is accepting responsibility. So this idea of, of acceptance um, is, I think, is, in, is incredibly important. You know, one way that um, one way that I, I use acceptance, I think, uh, and, and maybe you'll 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 tell me if I'm off on this in terms of how I'm applying it. But um, and we'll, we'll 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 talk about adversity and, and disappointment uh, a little bit later here in the show. But um, it's common for endurance athletes to have disappointing performances from time to time. I mean, just it just happens. Right. You're not going to nail it every single time you uh, you know, you step up to the starting line. And uh, in those cases in which athletes have disappointing experiences, I always ask them to do three things. I ask them to own it, to learn from it, and then to move forward. Um, the, the, the owning it, I think, uh, is, is a, I think for me anyway, is, is, is this application of accepting responsibility. Uh, you know, the, the outcome was what it was be, because of what I did or didn't do. Sure, there are random outside forces that are outside of my control, sometimes that dictate and determine performance. And yet I really feel like in order to move forward and to grow, you have to, you have to accept those things that were, that were within your control. Um, in other words, my outcome is, is related to me. My outcome is, I, I'm not blaming my outcome on someone else. Um, I, I, own, I own the outcome, whatever, whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. Um, how, how do you, how would you apply this, this, this core process of acceptance, uh, for an endurance athlete or how might, how might an endurance athlete apply this concept of, of acceptance? What does that mean in terms of psychological flexibility? Um, I mean, one of the pillars of psychological flexibility is, is really just acceptance. Um, and it's, it's the idea of acceptance without judgment and it's the acceptance of there are things that you cannot control. You know, I, I hear a lot of endurance athletes um, getting hyper-focused or perseverating on the weather. I, I mean, the weather is like, you have no control over the weather. And then you're, you're expounding all of this energy on thinking about the weather and looking at the weather and planning the weather. And, and, now, and now think about all that energy that's lost on the weather that you have no control over 
and you could think you know what the weather was going to be and wake up and have it be completely wrong. Yeah, so true. So the capacity to just as as weather as an example, because it is such a big thing, I think, with with um, athletes, just the ability to accept it as the weather is going to be this. And then I know that I can do X, Y. So this is where you accept and then you make a behavioral choice. Mm. I can accept it and then I can worry about it. And now am I really accepting it or am I fusing? So there's that idea of diffusion. So are you, are you fusing with the concept of I'm going to control the weather somehow, or are you going to really accept it and diffuse from those behaviors because they don't line up with your values and what you want to get out of this race? And can you make a committed action to behave in a different way as it relates to the weather? Yeah. What can so I commit to do around the weather as an endurance athlete so I can move forward? And then, yeah, then at the end, kind of practicing that same kind of process with what the outcomes were. Yeah, I think I think that was a that was a really eloquent way to kind of tie those uh, all those things together. Um, yeah, quick, quick example of of the weather. I'm glad you use that. Uh, I'm glad you use that um, that that example. Um, I, it, again, it's something as a professional endurance coach because people are racing outdoors in the environment. Uh, the weather the weather is sometimes a thing, um, and uh, you know the weather is always a thing. <laughs> the weather is always a thing. So, um, I mean, my 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 advice to to my athletes is um, is to prepare for the weather, and then once you have prepared for it, whatever it's going to be. Um, then you begin to focus on what, you know, the things that are within your control. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, an interesting example of that is, and and I, I wonder if you were, I wonder if you were there at this event this that year. But a couple of years ago at the at the Mount Washington Road Race, um, <laughs> the forecast really evolved in the 24 hours leading up to the event, and um, wh what everyone thought, you know, they had a pretty good. You know, the Mount Washington always has quite variable weather, right? It's going to change, literally can change on a dime. It can right. change from the start of the race to the yeah. finish of the race. Just, that's just the, that's just the nature of, of, of Mount Washington here in New Hampshire. Um, but um, in the, in, in the 12 hours or so um, before the morning of the race, the forecast had changed several times. And um, I remember I wasn't there. I wasn't racing that year, but I had a number of, of clients who were. And I remember them recounting to me after the fact that um, when they showed up to the venue, there was such a tither about the weather. Um, and everyone seemed to be losing their minds that, <laughs> that it, it was supposed to be sunny and now it's going to hail and it's going to snow. There's going to be a foot of snow. It's going to be 90 degrees. Uh, what are you wearing? Are you wearing a jacket, not wearing a jacket? I remember one of my, one of my athletes said at some point, she said, my head was spinning from everyone working themselves up in, into a lather that I actually had to walk away. She said, because we had had a plan for whatever the weather was going to be. We had had a plan. And yet I felt like I was getting pulled into this vortex, uh, this, this literal rabbit's hole um, that I couldn't escape out of. Were you there? Were you, do you remember this phenomena? I don't, I don't think I was there. That, that yeah. doesn't sound like a year I was 
All right. Well, if, if you had been there, you would have definitely noted, known. Oh, this. I would have walked away too. But like, <laughs> yeah. So let, yeah. Let so me what, give you my card, and we can talk about psychological <laughs> So so in well, let me ask you this. So in yeah. in that context, right? Is it would it be would it have been helpful to have some psychological flexibility related to this tither? the morning of the event with the weather and everyone losing their ever loving as, minds as a person engaged in the, the tither or the person who needed to step away. Well, e well the person well, who stepped away probably had greater psychological flexibility okay. than those who were probably caught up in okay. the, the mess of it. And, and I think that's, <clears throat> I, as it relates to sort of my, my job, my hope is when I, present or I teach people about psychological flexibility and this this concept that exists we as a society are so hooked on like this this toxic self-care culture yet we don't like deep dive into like where it's coming from that if we actually talked about these core processes as it relates to our behavioral response I actually think we as a society and as a culture could evolve in a much more positive direction um, because what that person probably experienced with the weather happens around all kinds of things all the time. And I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I could get on a soapbox about just no, the I think value of, of understanding this um, for so many. I mean, this is my life now is just how does this, how does this work with how I parent my relationships with loved ones? So, you know, yeah, just as athletes, I think, I think, again, just going back to your initial question about why I, I appreciate working with you as a coach is that I do think that you build a lot of this stuff in um, without recognizing what you're doing. And I just as an outsider think it's really cool that that's that that's happening and that that these kinds of things are working their way into a variety of um, places. Um, you know, wouldn't it be a wonderful place if everybody took the Rock Warriors way and that's how we educated kids or, <laughs> you know, I, you know, all those kinds of things. So, True. yeah. True. And, 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 and I, I really think that most people are neutral on these things, but all it takes is one person losing their mind next thing you know they have an audience mm -hmm. right and and most people will just be casual observers but they get caught up in mm -hmm. this emotion and this and this confusion and they don't know how to pull themselves away because it, to your point they they don't have these tools right. in their in their tool belt to pull from diffusion um you know in 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 the rock warriors way ilgner uh talks about uh, that our self-image suffers partly from its attachment to past performances, which, which tend to anchor us mm -hmm. more than is necessary. And he says that, that oftentimes performance is most easily improved, not by adding things, but by removing obstacles. Yep. How does that, yeah. How does that relate to this to this concept of of diffusion and 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 our our, our self image and and uh, our connection our very tight connection to the emotional experiences of past uh, of past performances? I I think we get very again it's it's this concept of being like hooked we get kind of stuck or hooked or caught up on 
catastrophizing the future. We we can't we can't undo the past. We are who we are because of all the experiences that we've had. And if we fuse with past failure to develop our self-context, so that's where the self is context kind of come gets kind of wrapped into that as well. If we get really fused by that, I'm not a good runner because I I can't run a this. I'm a bad athlete because of this or, or whatever it is. We're we're getting so hooked by that that then we're not allowing that that acceptance or that moment of like curiosity about what may be. Like we have no we have to we can learn from our past. We bring our past with us and they if we could bring bring it with us as like luggage full of lessons instead of luggage full of baggage. I think that we could grow in a very positive way. I I, I kind of conceptualize uh, people, even myself, as almost like it's a mosaic as opposed to a puzzle. Puzzles, everybody can go get a puzzle and that puzzle looks like the one that's behind it on the store shelf. But if you think about a mosaic, we're all a bunch of broken pieces. <laughs> but we try to figure out how all those pieces or those past lessons fit together to really create something pretty powerful and beautiful. But we don't want to fuse with whatever the broken thing was that we were we lost. How do, the, how do those pieces become lessons to put together to create something really beautiful and new? And, and we have to really step back from losses are, are who we are. Um, I, I see this, I'm sure you see this with clients, but I see it with, with children all the time that I'm the this person. I'm the kid that's always in trouble. And so then that becomes their badge of honor and then everything gets justified on top of that. Um, I'm always going to be the, I mean, I think I just said it earlier today to you, like I'm always going to be the mid pack runner. And it's, and it's really because I get fused or I get hooked by that thought because that's where I always end up. And so then that becomes who I am. And then if I fail, I'm like, well, I'm only a mid pack runner or if I succeed, I'm like, oh my gosh, it must've been like, it was the weather. <laughs> you know, there was some other thing rather than allowing us an opportunity to like learn from what did I do right now? So I think that idea of diffusion is really that point of openness to lesson and curiosity for growth. Um, it, it's a difficult concept, but it really hooks people quite a bit. Um, we are so fused with our past self. Um, we fuse people <laughs> with their past selves. And then when they don't meet that expectation for us, we we're on them. Um, so again, it's, it, those, those pieces play, play a lot into that part. It's, it's, yeah, it's like peeling an onion. It's, you know, shedding a skin. It's, you know, building your mosaic really. Yeah. Il Ilgner talks a lot about past history, uh, in the rock warriors way. And it's a conversation that I'm, I'm having with my, with my athletes quite often. Um, uh, you know, when they, uh, when they, when they create barriers to performance because of past experiences, you know, um, I, I, I like there's to use that fusion. There's that, that, you know, yeah. like, yeah, that, yeah, that you almost yeah. in your intro to getting new clients, asking them that question, like what's, yeah, you know, what's the most salient race you've ever done, you know, cause there's probably a lot of information that might come out of that because if it, if it sticks with them and it becomes very salient in their mind, they've probably built self concepts around it as an athlete 
Um, <clears throat> and that can be really, really potentially powerful, maybe for good, but can also, I think, be a drag on your, your potential. Yeah, and I, I I actually see it I, I see it more often as a detriment than 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 an asset. Our connection to 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 our past history and our and our past self. Um, speaking of self, this this idea of of self as as context um, again in the in the Rock Warriors way. And actually, the the first chapter is titled "Becoming Conscious," mm-hmm. uh, you know, and 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 putting ourselves in the witness position. That is being an observer of our thoughts, yeah. um, and right as sort of the the first step, right to this, this this idea of enlightenment, this 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 greater sense of self that you have to step outside of of yourself and and um, allow yourself uh, or, or a- allow your thoughts not to not to define who you are, but to observe your thoughts. Right. And I and I think what happens, and and I think the reason that that's the f- the first chapter of the book is that um, we often we we need we need to become aware of self limiting behavior before we can move beyond it, right? And mm-hmm. the only way to become aware of self limiting behavior is to is to put yourself in the witness position and to observe your thoughts um, in, in 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 many different in many different circumstances and scenarios. Um, is, I mean, am, am I, am, am I right then mm-hmm. when, when I, when I'm thinking about self as context, this idea of becoming conscious, be, putting yourself in the witness position, being an observer of your thoughts, is that, is, yeah. is that, is you're that not your, yep, you're not your thoughts. You can have thoughts and not act on them. You can have thoughts about stuff that's not even in the room. <laughs> And it can feel like it's in the room. So I can imagine with the Rock Warriors way, I think because rock climbing can have this sense of danger beyond like a runner, for example, it's a beautiful book to think about with these concepts because imagine somebody's on the wall, hyper-focused on thoughts of falling. What does that do to your likelihood of falling? So in that way, I mean, but think about bringing that onto into a marathon and you're like, I'm going to hit the wall at mile 20. I'm going to hit the wall at mile 20. I'm going to hit the wall at mile 20. It's, it's that, you know, you say it and it happens, but if you don't have that self as context, then you can go, well, see, I already knew it happened. I knew it was going to happen. I told you, I told you. But at the same time, you've, you've sort of like you put it, you you can make a behavioral decision and not hit a wall, even just having probably other thoughts and recognizing that you're outside of that. You could sit as the observing self. You know, I can, I'm thinking about what what I'm going to do after we get off this call. It doesn't mean I'm going to like leave the call right now. Right. But I can have that and I can observe it and then come back to the moment where I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be focused on Chris right now and I'm going to miss what he's having to say. So that all that stuff comes comes into play. Yeah. And I and I wonder I wonder how that ties into the six uh, process, which is mindfulness. Um, um, I mean, there is there is a part of the Rock Warriors way that um, um, I, I believe the chapter is called listening. That's an that's an important um, uh, foundation of the Rock Warriors way, um, and and so when I when I think of mindfulness, I do think of that concept of listening, 
Um, it, tell me a little bit more about how mindfulness, how mindfulness is practiced for endurance athletes. What, I mean, can you give an example of, of, of what that might look like? Um, I think for me personally, it is probably the best way for me to explain it, or I can explain it. I probably have a good story from a friend too, who's not one of your co your athletes, but yeah. has had some interesting experiences as it relates to this. Yeah, please. Um, so for me, I, I recognize that this mindfulness thing is, um, recognizing things that are happening in your body and either giving it attention or sort of stepping away from it. Oh, I'm recognizing that this is happening, but I'm going to step away from it and do something else. So it, it is also that, um, self is context because if you're present in the moment, you start to be able to notice um, you outside of your thoughts as well. I'm recognizing, so sometimes I have some GI stuff that works up. And I think the last time we spoke, I kind of talked about how I recognized that it was happening and I kind of gave it a thought and I was present with recognizing it. But then I also decided that it, this was an opportunity to step away from it too. And that if I got hooked by it, it was going to become a problem. And so I turned my attention to other things that were happening. And I think being able to practice that all the time will help people get back to the work that's at hand, honestly. Um, if we start to hyper-focus on these, these other things that might be happening with them. Oh, I think I'm getting a cramp. And now you're like on it. How, what other things can I be present to or can I be aware of? Can I recognize my breathing? Can I notice even just the weather that's happening that's really nice or the scenery or check in with my breathing? Um, you know, just being, I think you have a few workouts that are just like run with a smile, like just those kinds of workouts. Like it's all about practicing present moment awareness within the act of exercise really I, it, at least that's how i've always sort of uh attacked what i've attached to it um <clears throat> so there is a method to your math madness <laughs> for sure um because those things are really important especially i think when you're i mean i think about running running the 100k that i i ran and just having to be present in that moment and being really just grateful that i'm there and look there are flowers and look at the people that are here and being able to go beyond sort of physical discomfort and physical pain and being present to other things that are there take you to that next level. Um, a story I have about a friend of mine is not an athlete of yours. Um, someone I run with every once in a while when, when she's not training for triathlete as a triathlete um, has just recently started doing coaching. I don't know if her coach actually does specific mental training um, but I've talked to her quite a bit about mental training and the importance of it and the value of it. Because, um, again, all the stuff is very much a lifestyle. <laughs> um, she's started to push her, those things that she's fused herself with, these concepts of who she is and what her limitations are, really held her up. And I was always saying to her, you're better than what you're telling yourself. You are really hooked by telling yourself you could only do this. You can only hit this. You can only do this. You can only run that fast. You can only get your heart rate up to here. You can only swim like this. You can only do this. She's very hooked by that. Always, there's always this surprise if she 
pushes beyond that point. And I always talk to her about letting go of those things. You've got to let go, just be in the moment, be in the moment and push beyond, be in the moment, push beyond, be curious that you could do better than that. I know you could do better than that. Your mind is getting in the way. You're you're getting your in your own way. Get, you've got to get over, out of your way. So she started to do some workouts that have scared the living bejesus out of her. And I'm really grateful to her coach for just putting her in that place. And she's pushed herself. She said to me, I remember when you told me that I need to let go of the thoughts that I was having and my worries about I'm not going to be able to do this and I'll pass out and I'm going to die or I'm going to fall off my bike or something's going to happen. I'm not going to be able to do it. She's like, and I let go and I started being more aware in the moment of what was happening and knew, okay, I can get to this. And she's like, then the the workout would break and I was okay. And then I was like, I'm going to do that again. And then, and when I saw her after she did that workout, I saw her at school. It was like, holy shit, (laughs) this whole other side of her ability, her capacity for um, what could potentially be there for her and her ability to train I think, and I'm not a coach and I I don't know what her training plan is, but I've seen such a shift in her ability to do some really hard back to back to back things. I don't think if she, if she had stayed stuck in what she had fused with and not practiced present moment in those difficult moments, I don't think she would have evolved to this new place. And she's 100% in a completely new place. The willingness to take some physical risks is happening for her. And it's really remarkable. And I, I think when I see that from students that I work with that get onto that other side, it's beautiful. So I can imagine as a coach, it's a beautiful thing. Like I'm just expressing it from a friend who's sort of tried to like give this person some mental training tips and things like that based on my own experience. But I, I saw I saw it kind of happen with her as it relates to endurance sports and 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 coaching, and it's it's pretty powerful. And I don't know if without the mental component, would she have pushed or would she have gone? It was just too hard. I couldn't do it today. And then the next day, it's just too hard. I couldn't do it today. But the fact that in that moment, she kind of decided today's the day I'm not going to give in to the difficult thoughts and feelings and get fused with my my history and what I think I am in that little box and I'm going to move beyond and I just think in order to be an endurance athlete you're not going to pull you're not going to be successful and it doesn't mean that you're going to like run a 240 marathon but I mean who doesn't love that cathartic feeling of like holy crap, look at what I've, I can do. Like, just, wow. Yeah. Breaking through that obstruction and, and, and getting uh, to the next level. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, that you've, that you framed or phrased, um, uh, a couple of drills, uh, or the the concept, this concept of present moment awareness. Um, I, I actually do have two drills that tend to show up in, in, in people's plans. Um, what, and interestingly enough, again, me not understanding that that 
concept of present moment awareness was a thing. Like I, I know all three of those words, but I've never put those three words together. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, um, I actually have two drills that show up mm -hmm. in in, uh, in in people's training plans quite frequently. One is called meditation in motion, yep. and, and the other is called uh, mental focus. So the <clears throat> meditation in motion. It can actually, it can be a running drill or it can be a cycling drill. It, it actually could be, it could be a swimming drill. It could be any, it could be any activity. But the point is to, to bring your attention and awareness into the moment, into the present, into feeling uh, how you're carrying your shoulders, how are you carrying your arms, how are your feet impacting the ground, or how are you turning the pedals. Being in the moment and, and in, in being present, because really, meditation is about being present. Mm -hmm. <laughs> meditation is not about thinking ahead into the future or, uh, or perseverating on what's happened in the past. Meditation right. is about the present moment, right? It's about, mm -hmm. I mean, in its purest form, it's, it's breathing techniques and, and, uh, uh I mean, there's a spiritual component as well, right. but, but I, but I actually feel like meditation can be an active pursuit as well. I don't, I don't limit my concept of meditation as being a static, um, um, uh, non-active uh, uh, entity or phenomena. So meditation in motion is one of these present moment awareness drills that, that get worked in the, into routines. The other is mental focus. That's this, that's this drill where um, um, when you notice your thoughts are wandering, beyond mm -hmm. the present moment like you're out for a run and you're thinking about what you're going to make for dinner uh, or you're out for a bike ride and you are you are reliving and replaying your work day right you you the first thing to do is to acknowledge these are the, these are my thoughts this is where my mind is and then bring your attention back to the present moment mm -hmm. i'm pedaling my bike right now uh you know and i'm this I'm on this beautiful gravel road or I'm, I'm I'm doing this trail run and I'm and there's a bend in the trail right now and I've got to make sure I pick my feet up over this this rootstock um those two drills again without me really without me putting those three words together present moment awareness um I mean don't you think that those two drills are are pretty good examples of this concept of present moment awareness absolutely <laughs> Um, there, there I go again, accidentally being a behavior, uh, behavior analyst without, without knowing it. The last two core processes, um, I, I, I want to talk about, uh, collectively, um, and, and, and I want to, I want to reference a different book. Um, and that's the book, the one thing, uh, by Gary Keller. In fact, uh, recently I did a podcast with, uh, with my buddy, uh, uh, Timothy Lindsay, who is a, uh, is a, uh, is a productivity professional. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Tim coaches uh, actually out of the book, The One Thing. Um, and in, in the book, The One Thing, interestingly enough, um, Keller talks about um, the big picture and the small focus. Mm -hmm. And for me, the big picture and the small focus are values and committed action, right? So the big picture is, um, uh, it's, you know, what's important to me. Right. The small focus, the committed action is, What's the one thing that I can do right now such that by doing it makes everything else easier or unnecessary? So big picture, what are my values? Small focus, what do I need to do right now in order to move toward becoming the person that I want to be? Am I right about, about yes, spot on. things? Spot on. Aligning with, yep. with values yep. and committed action, right? 
big picture, big picture, small focus. So I'll, um, I'll, I'll ask the, the listener to reference my podcast with, uh, with, with Tim Lindsay about those two topics. You know, this, this concept of psychological flexibility, I think, um, is an excellent predicate for a concept that you and I have talked about a little bit. And I think really, interestingly enough, um, I think this concept, uh, well, this concept is something that I've been practicing professionally without really even knowing that this concept existed. <laughs> uh, and I, again, I think it's one of these sort of coincidental behavior analyst things that, uh, that, uh, that any endurance coach with an appreciation for the mental side of sport probably is doing to, to one degree or another. But this, um, this concept um, uh, called the zipper effect. Um, you, you had sent me a, 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 a quite extensive bibliography um, um, as, part of my, as part of my show prep. And as I was going through that bibliography, I stumbled upon uh, a paper um, by, uh, um, by a group of researchers out of, out of Canada uh, from, uh, from, it was a 2018 paper, um, in the, uh, the journal of psychology, psychology of sport and exercise. Um, and in that, in, in that 2018, uh, paper, um, again, the, the, the researchers were out of the university of British Columbia and the university of Alberta. Um, they, uh, they interviewed seven elite female athletes. And they, they asked these uh, elite female athletes about their perceptions of two concepts that I talk about all the time with my athletes. In fact, I've talked about these two concepts with you. Personally. Mm -hmm. um, and those two concepts are mental toughness and self-compassion. And this, th this idea of the, of the zipper effect, really, you know, it's like Aristotle said, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Meaning, in this case, meaning um, that that both mental toughness and self-compassion are important uh, are important um, uh, values to hold, and they're important concepts to apply. Um, but when those two concepts are um, are connected, are intertwined, um, it ends up being a force multiplier. In other words, and I and I really again I. I, I, I really do, do believe that psychological flexibility is the predicate for the, the zipper effect, um, meaning we, we have to know when it's, when it's time to apply mental toughness, and we also need to know when it's appropriate to apply self-compassion, because mm -hmm. um, it's not an either-or, right? <laughs> right? right. But, but, yet, but yet I, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be curious to get your take on this. I do feel like most people see those two things as being completely opposite, meaning you're either mentally tough or you have the ability to show self-compassion, but you can't possibly, you can't possibly be both and apply both at the same mm -hmm. time. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into those two concepts separately, but, but what, what, what's your sort of first blush take on this zipper effect, this idea that mental toughness and self-compassion can, those two concepts can both be held at the same time, but applied in, in very specific situations. Yeah. And I, I think in every situation, those two things are going to come together in different, different ways as well. But like, I think you mentioned, I think psychological flexibility being that ability to, to kind of hold these things lightly and, and use them in different ways at different times, depending on what the situation requires of you 
um, and not getting so hooked that I need to be more mentally tough. And that potentially, if you develop some better self-compassion, you might move in the direction you want to. Um, we also, I think, <clears throat> sometimes in our society, and I, I think we need to move beyond this, is we get this idea that we have to be mentally tough and we can't have self-compassion is weak. And that by demonstrating sort of harder, softer emotions, that in and of itself can't possibly mean that you're tough and that you're mentally tough. And so there's there's this idea that this is a you can't have one or the other. It's got to be these two two different camps and you've got to pick one. Yeah, true. I, I I like the idea of that these things work together and that it's there's beauty in the juxtaposition of those things and how those things come together and how we kind of move back and forth. Um, and the, the idea of a zipper effect being that we're using them at different times, but then they're coming together as a whole is, is kind of a nice concept. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, it, I mean, it, it, the truth is that um, for for all endurance athletes, at some point they will experience hardship and adversity and and disappointment. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge is how they react to that right. adversity. Um, I'm a very big advocate about uh, adversity being a, a really important part of a of a of a training camp, right? I mean, not every training unit can happen exactly as it is intended to to happen. Uh, things happen sometimes your stomach goes sideways uh mother nature doesn't cooperate um and 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 yet um there's benefit to persevering mm -hmm. and persisting through those hardships and adversity um and because because i do feel like that creates a certain level of of mental toughness in other words you you have to experience adversity in training i believe to be able to uh, with, with withstand it and endure it and be resilient um, in the context of it mm -hmm. when you get into competition. Right. Because <laughs> not, and you know, the, the longer the race, the more likely it is that things aren't going to work out. Right. right? And, 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 but if you've, but if you've always sort of shied away from adversity and training, how can you possibly expect to be able to persevere and be resilient within competition when things don't go? your way. So, so I do think, I, I, I do think I've always thought that there's, that there's benefit to, to adversity training. You know, I mean, that sort of the classic definition of, of mental toughness is the ability to cope with stress and the, the belief in one's ability to cope with stress, right. Are, are key to, to being, uh, to being mentally tough. And I, and, 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 you know, that point about our belief yep. that we can endure being so incredibly important to mental toughness right um uh <laughs> because you know how often do we have a low a low self uh affect as it relates to our ability to cope with things right, right. in other words we shy away from adversity because to, you know to your earlier point about fusing right to past experiences well i don't do well in the heat Right. right. Based on past experience. And so the forecast for tomorrow is going to be hot and humid. So uh, I'll run I'll run the day after when it's going to be overcast and cloudy. In other words, I'm going to avoid that adverse situation right. because I just know myself. I don't deal well in the heat. See, for me, I'd rather you sacrifice the quality 
of the workout tomorrow, even if it's done in adverse conditions, because I think there's a tremendous amount to, to be learned and a tremendous amount of experience in dealing with adversity to be gained. Um, so, it, you know, for sure, mental toughness is, is, is important for managing uh, stressful, high performance demands. Right? I mean, it's, that's an, it's an important yeah. skill. It's an important skill to have. Um, in, and, and, and these researchers, uh, you know, I think in a very clever way, um, listed mental toughness as being the three P's, P as in poly, uh, perseverance, presence, and uh, perspective. Um, and, 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 and again, I think, I, I think these three things tie back to this concept of psychological flexibility, perseverance, right? The ability to carry on despite difficulties. I mean, it's also referred to as, as resilience. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you see, how do you see perseverance playing out for the endurance athlete? How, how have you personally, uh, uh, utilized uh, perseverance uh, as a way to to work through a mentally difficult situation, like as in a race. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that would be a, that would be a good example, but it certainly could apply to just about any circumstance. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, as an as an endurance athlete, that, I mean, I I think about you know I think we we had mentioned briefly like Boston in 2018 was let's talk about that that's a, yeah that's a Boston 2018 was not a great year to run boston yeah um, so for the for the listener that maybe uh doesn't remember uh the weather in, at the 2018 boston marathon uh can you can you summarize what the weather was like at the 2018 boston marathon uh, it was like a literal shit show um, so the weather the weather was like mid 30s maybe 40 but the wind was going every which way direction it would rain slightly and then it would feel like buckets were being of water were being dumped on runners um the puddles were there people were taking off bags so then the roads were filled with trash um i mean even just to start the race just talk about kind of mentally preparing yourself for a race in athletes village it's this big um, pop-up and everybody was huddled in it sitting on plastic in puddles of mud um so not the best way to get ready to start a race um so in that moment there was a lot of self-compassion but there was a lot of mental toughness about i'm here I'm going to put myself out there and gonna let's let's see what happens. Um, and the wheels for me came off. Um, but again, it was you didn't have control. All you had control over was how you were gonna mentally sort of work through what was happening in that race. Now, um, now, the, now the truth is though that um, there were a lot of people that dropped out. Oh yeah, or didn't even show up. Or, or, or didn't even show up, okay? The truth is, uh, you both showed up mm -hmm. and you also finished. You didn't quit, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, interestingly enough, what's that? I said there were certainly moments that you okay. want to. Okay, fair, but, um, you know, when, when, you know when, when, when we think about those three Ps of mental toughness, mm -hmm. perseverance, presence, and perspective, right? Yep. 
uh, we talked about perseverance. That's the ability to carry on despite difficulties. Yep. Clearly, you were able to do that because yep. you finished the Boston Marathon under the most just about the most adverse conditions you can possibly imagine at the Boston Marathon. Presence, you know, presence is this ability to focus and refocus attention on the present moment and the, and toward the task at hand. So, so help, help me to help the listener, help me and the listener understand how did you apply this concept of presence at so the I, 2018 Boston Marathon? So there was a certain point where I felt like I couldn't see very well. I think I was starting to get hypothermic. Um, I was also having a lot of pain. Um, I, I, it just was bad. What I was doing was that the task at hand is to get through this race. And every mile there is a med tent. And I'm going to stay focused on one foot in front of the other. Check in with myself. Every time I see a med tent, there's a med tent. Body, mind, spirit, where am I at? Can I get to the next med tent? Yep. All right, let's go. Next med tent. Mind, body, spirit. Here I am. I can do this. Can I make it to the next med tent? Yep. Next med tent. I did that most of, I would say, the race from about mile 16 to the end. Um, that's just what I did. I didn't focus. I didn't, I was not aware of anything else that was going on around me. I don't even remember the weather from that point on, because all I did was stay focused on one foot in front of the other, mind, body, spirit. Can I get to the next bed tent? Every tent. I remember that people said that they yelled to me and they were like, you were in such a zone. And it was this, it was just this constant sort of mantra that I was sort of putting myself through to just get to the end. Now, part of it was also I thought I would get to the end faster running there point. than waiting for medical people to drive me to the end where my ride was. So I, I know that that sounds silly, but it also provided me with a best worst case scenario. Do I want to sit and wait or do I think that my body is tough enough? Like trust the training what right now is holding me back from really just finishing because my body is strong enough to be able to get through this. So now it really is my mind and my spirit and whether or not I can kind of keep moving. And if a med tent is right there, I'm not in any danger. Right. So I think that there's like a lot of that. And, and I wasn't like injured, injured. I was in pain, but it, I think, so much was going on. So it's really just all of those checks and balances, being mm -hmm. able to be present with yourself, check in with your, your body. Again, like we talked about with the six core processes, stepping outside of your thoughts and not getting so hooked by catastrophizing that you panic because now that is going to make every, your spirit is not going to hold, hold it together if you start to panic either. Um, so again, that presence and presencing is which is a term that we use in psychological flexibility is this idea of presencing um it helps it's it's those kind of check-ins with yourself yeah and then and then the um and then that that third p perspective right the ability to see the big picture 
mm-hmm. uh, or or to approach these these sports related uh, adverse uh, situations um, with w- with an attitude that is that is process oriented. Right. Um, d- did you use perspective at all? This ability to see the big picture uh, w- with within within that 2018 Boston Marathon. I think just going and not just like throwing it out the window as soon as I saw the weather and knew <laughs> what's the reality. Like what's, what's the perspective right now? Like the reality is this isn't going to be the, it might not be the goal day. It might not be, you know, that lofty goal that you have us kind of put out there, but you know, what's, what's the bigger, what's the bigger picture, you know, where's, What's the val? What's the values that? Mm. What by doing this am I going to learn on the other end that is going to enhance my capacity as an athlete and as a human being? And going to Boston, in and of itself, has always been something that's not about performance, but about process and a, a personal values system for myself. So just remembering that. I wasn't there to like, yeah, I did train for that thinking I wanted to have this like big lofty goal. But in the moment when I really stepped back and said like, what, like, let's take the real hard look at the perspective of why I'm here. It really had more to do with dealing with adversity. Hmm. You learn so much from that. Like I could have hit, it could have been a perfect day and I would have hit my goal time. I probably would have learned a lot less. Yeah, I, I think that's I think you're absolutely correct with that. In fact, that's a conversation I've had with with people over and over again. I do think we learn more uh, through uh, dealing with hardship than we do uh, than, than we do success. I take, you know, Boston, the- I take Boston, this particular Boston race into so many other races and so many other training units. It's pretty remarkable. And I would say I take Boston that year into more things than I do my PR marathon time, which was pretty badass time. I, I don't reflect back on that and go, wow, I learned a lot from that. Yeah, that perfect. I go, that was pretty. I, this is, this makes my, the mosaic of my life. That other thing is really just pretty. This is, this is, this is the meat and potatoes, the Boston race. Yeah. And I, and I, I think that I really think it's next level mindset to be able to embrace those uh, those experiences, those applications of mental toughness. You know, the other the, the other, of course, the 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 other part of the other side of the zipper is this concept of self-compassion, you know, being kind and, and non-judgmental uh, towards oneself uh, when faced with you know pain or inadequacy or suffering or failure. Uh, this concept of self-compassion allows the athlete to approach, embrace, and move forward after setbacks with, with a positive, balanced, and, and accurate, um, perspective. Um, the, the authors talk about self-compassion as, as having three components. And, and I, I want you to talk about these three components as it relates to another marathon experience that you recently had, which was, uh, the Sugarloaf Marathon this, this, this past year. Um, in which, from my perspective, as your coach, um, I saw you demonstrate a significant amount of self-compassion as it relates to the postscript <laughs> of that event. In fact, it's very likely, although I wasn't there, um, um, it's very likely you were demonstrating self-compassion within the experience of the event as mm-hmm. well. But, but the authors talk about uh, self-compassion as having three components, right? 
self-kindness, mm -hmm. which is positive self-talk, common humanity, this idea that we are not alone, and mindfulness, right? Focusing attention in the present moment. There, there we are again talking about mindfulness, right? So self-compassion, self-kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. Tell the listener a little bit about the, the 2022 Sugarloaf Marathon and, and why you think I perceive that as a great example of self-compassion. Um, it didn't quite go as planned. Yeah, well, well, I mean, what... Talk a little bit for a moment. Talk about your preparation for for Sugarloaf. Like you had a pretty good training camp. Sugarloaf was a spot on training camp, completely. Yep, yep. It was it was all it was a sunshine and roses kind of training camp. And I was, Every, everything was lining up for you to. I mean, the, the course right was amenable to to pretty fast running. Yep. Um, the fact that you had had this really amazing experience at Boston a few weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. In other words, you were you were carrying a tremendous amount of positive affect and positive yeah. emotion yeah. out of Boston. Um, you were healthy, you mm -hmm. were fit, uh, and you know you had a you had an, an extraordinary plan to attack Sugarloaf, yeah. and yet the day didn't quite yeah. turn out the way that you had planned. So again, talk a little bit about a little bit about maybe how things went sideways, and then and then you know describe to the listener how you applied the, this concept of self-compassion, self-kindness, common humanity, mindfulness. Um, so I, as you mentioned, like leading up to Sugarloaf was pretty remarkable training. Um, things happened easy. They were happening well. I ran Boston and then came out of Boston feeling better than before Boston. Um, so I was going to Sugarloaf pretty, pretty stoked to like get out there and see what a 44 year old woman could do in a race um you know in terms of hitting hitting big marathon times um <clears throat> but the weather was definitely something that i did not have control over um it was hot but then what happened that morning was that it was very humid um so the humidity really kicked in and i we had no control, we had no control of soupy humidity um, and no sun to burn it off, which meant you were running in it. Um, and I started the race. I had a great plan. I ran according to plan, but almost off the out of the gate, I knew I was having to work harder to hit the plan than what I had experienced throughout training. And so in my mind, I I, I think in my mind, I already knew today was going to be a day I was going to have to learn some lessons as opposed to staying too focused on outcomes. It was going to be a process day. Um, what was going to happen for me? How was this going to, to unfold? Because I kind of had an inkling that things were not going to unfold the way I had planned. Um, I think it's very would be very easy for somebody who wasn't practicing sort of that self-compassion piece to get really caught up in the oh no's and get stuck there and then really fall apart. Um, and I think knowing and practicing these things all the time 
as as just part of what I do. I think it allowed, I think it it was maybe a little bit more automatic. So there's a lot more automaticity, I think, with when I do these things within a race. So then when somebody asks me to break it down, it can sometimes be feel really weird to break it down because it's become very automatic for me. But there's definitely a lot of mindfulness and in the moment thinking about what what's my goal right now? What am I valuing in this moment? What am I committed to do here? Um, how am I going to talk to myself in a way that continues to move me forward? Um, knowing that it wasn't going to go as I had expected, but I try, but I, I would, I know you hate the try word, but I definitely put in work to, to see what I was capable of to a certain point. See, you, you, you actually were able to, you're actually able to phrase that without using, using the word yep. try. So good, mm -hmm. good, good on you. You, you caught yourself. <laughs> <laughs> because I definitely, I definitely wanted to see if I could move beyond what I was feeling in the moment initially. Maybe this is just me getting through this first chunk of the race. But then when I came to a certain point when the race should have gotten exponentially easier, the, the downhill part. Sudden, it got harder. When you're in a downhill part of a race and it feels harder than the uphill part of the race, you have a problem. Like something in your body is going, not today. <laughs> and I had to just accept, I, I li really had to just accept that. Today is not the day that I'm going to meet my goal. However, I, I, again, I look back at Boston. There's always a lesson in not hitting a goal. Really. It, there's, you're, you, as human beings, and I 100% at endurance athletes, if they are able to understand that beyond the wall, that in maybe self-perceived walls that we put up for ourselves, if we can knock down those walls or push them a little bit farther, there's something on the other side of that. And in every race I encounter and every race that I do, that's always my goal. That's always my focus and my goal. Big PRs, so much fun. Like it feels really, really good. It's like a cherry on top, but it's it doesn't build a better athlete in no way, shape, or form. It's a signal of potential. It's not, it's not humanity. It's not this human side we all suffer we all get scared we all want to give up we all want to do that but what if we all gave up what if we were we, we all like behaved in a way when we were scared to hide in bed nothing wonderful would happen in this world and i believe that that's the same with endurance amazing endurance athletes have to go through these walls have to go through adversity we're all we're humans. We all share emotions. We all share pain and struggle. It's it's like I think you mentioned earlier. It's really how we behave with that. So in a race like Sugarloaf, how am I going to behave in this moment? I could have give, given up. I had somebody come right near me who kept checking in with me, thinking I was going to tap out, going to tap out, going to tap out. I almost fell over at one point, thought I was going to tap out. But again, one foot in front of the other, I can keep going with this. You know, it's, I, I can do this. I can do this and then I can reflect on it. And what did I learn? Um, it, I, I think that all of those things kind of happen. I, I just, I don't know. I, 
I feel very, um, when I talk about it in a race like that, I feel um, uh, I don't know if people get it. I don't know. It, it feels funny to talk about races that way, but it's it's why I do what I do. I and I think as an endurance athlete, you bring some unique stuff into just daily life anyway, uh, and vice versa. Well, I think I think it's an important it's an important experience to talk about, particularly in this, in this concept of, of self-compassion because, and really my, my observation of, of you using this concept of self-compassion was, was in how you, uh, in how you described the experience after the fact and how mm -hmm. you recapped the race for me. Um, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of getting down on yourself. There wasn't a lot of beating yourself up. There wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't any, I'm a failure or I'm a weak runner or I'm weak minded. There was none of that. Um, it, it was, again, it was, it was very much this demonstration of, of self-compassion. Um, and I, I just think it's, I think it's incredibly important that, that again, we have the psychological flexibility to, to be both mentally tough and, self-compassionate, um, maybe not necessarily in the same instance, but to be able to apply those two concepts when necessary and, and when appropriate. That, that in other words, you, you can hold both of those things to be true. You don't have to be one or the other. In fact, it's probably beneficial as an endurance athlete that you have the capacity for both, that you have the capacity to endure and persevere through, uh, through adversity, um, and then, and, and then at other times, uh, to be able to, to be kind to yourself, uh, mm -hmm. and to accept that, that, that was the performance for that day. It doesn't define who you are. Um, and it doesn't mean that you are a terrible athlete or that you are physically weak or mentally weak. Um, and again, the, these are conversations that I'm, I'm having with, with my, with my athletes all of the time. I'll now start to use, um, I'll start to use that concept of the zipper effect um, more frequently. Well, that th this entire conversation about uh, psychological flexibility the uh, and the zipper effect, I think it's just so incredibly important for endurance athletes. Yeah. Um, and uh, with some good fortune, this this podcast has given people some uh, some uh, cause to pause and think about and reflect about these things. Um, well, the last thing I want to do is is a fun little segment I call random questions. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Now, um, the way that this works is uh, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to verify to the listener that I have not given you these three random questions in advance. Can you verify that you I have can verify not, that? <laughs> yeah, okay. You can verify that you have not received I have these not three received random questions. All right. Okay. So this, this is going to be an exercise in um in psychological dexterity uh the ability to think on your feet and to be nimble and agile because you have nothing <laughs> in these these questions in advance so let's let's test out your your mental dexterity your mental Just don't agility. make me spell anything <laughs> there's this is not a spelling test all right here's the first random question uh first random question is uh what's the most irrational superstition or fear that you have most irrational either superstition or most irrational fear that you possess that my daughter is going to fall down the stairs break her neck and die i this is a thought that this is a thought that goes through your mind all the time 
it's a running joke now in my house because I have such an irrational fear around that. Well, this is interesting because, uh, again, a little bit, a little bit of a, of inside knowledge for the listener. The last time you and I, I were on a call, uh, your daughter wanted to carry, apparently <laughs> wanted to carry a heavy box down the stairs, mm -hmm. and you reminded her that maybe it would might not be the best idea for you to carry that heavy box down the stairs because you can barely pick it up, and your 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 suggestion to her was to to bring the things in the box down individually. Now, to me, that was a that was a 100% spot on motherly bit of advice. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that that advice is born out of this irrational fear. Your daughter has not well, has your daughter fallen down the stairs before? No. Have you ever fallen down the stairs? Yes. Okay, so maybe it's not maybe it's not terribly irrational. You've had you've had the the, the I think falling down the stairs is something that everybody is going to encounter in their life. Mine is just so irrational that I I have like literal physical anxiety watching her go down the stairs. Got it. And there are times where we've gone places with really steep stairs that I have to ask somebody else to go up the stairs or down the stairs with her because I can't, I can't watch because the fear is that irrational. Do you ever apply psychological flexibility to those circumstances and step outside of your emotion or is it, or is it too difficult because I try, but this one is really hard. Okay. All right. Got it. <laughs> okay. Got it. Interesting. Um, all right. Second, second random question. Uh, what's a story you love to tell? but you seldom get the chance to. Oh, I don't know. Story I love to tell, but I rarely get the chance to. I don't, I don't know if I have one. Okay. That's, that's, that's fair. You, I mean, you must have stories. You, you must have, you must have stories you love to tell, but there isn't necessarily one story that you just, like it's a favorite story of yours. That's fair. No, I. Well, let, let me ask you this. Do, are, are, are you the one at parties that tends to tell the stories or are you the one at parties that, that tends to be listening to other people tell stories? I listen to other people tell stories. Okay, so you're not necessarily the one that's standing in the room and there are, there are 15 people uh, gathered around you listening to your really interesting story that you're telling. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's part of, of, I think of interestingly, the story the stories I love, I like to tell is, is really how I, I kind of like it, it applies to what we were talking about. So I just don't want to go back into that. Cause I think it'll be really too nerdy for everybody. Um, but I don't know if I have a, no, I, you, you, you tend to be the introvert at the party, not the extrovert. I think I, in terms of storytelling. I think in terms of storytelling, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I've gotten too nerdy in my year. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so I, I I guess the takeaway message from that is that most, we're going to be like, I have no yeah, idea. Most of your stories are kind of, are, are you, would, you would be nerding out. And yeah. so you're a little bit hesitant to, mm -hmm. yeah, to put yourself out there as the nerd mm -hmm. of, the, of the party. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's to that is totally fair. 
random question number three. This one, I think you will have an answer to, okay. uh, <laughs> as opposed to the last one that you stonewalled me on. Okay. Sorry. Here you go. I, if I had these questions ahead of time, I would. Have uh, that's the point. That's the point of three random questions. Okay. Random question number three. This is actually one of my one of my favorite questions to ask. All right. Uh, so I have a time machine. Okay. okay. And I'm gonna, and I'm going to give you a trip, one okay. free trip in my time mm -hmm. machine. Um, now. If you could spend three seconds in the future, future or three hours in the past, at any point in the past or, or any point in the future, which would it be? Like when, where, and why? Three seconds in the future? In other words, get a, get a very brief glimpse of the future? Or would you rather spend three hours in the past, at any point in the past, either either within your lifetime or lifetimes before you where are you traveling in my time machine i think i would go to the it, so interestingly enough i hated life growing up but i think i would rather go three hours in the past i think there are things and i think i would stay in my life and i'd want to spend three hours in the past learning to appreciate something that i think i missed can you all right I, I like that idea. Can you can you narrow it down a little bit to a to a, a point in your life? Like, are you talking early childhood? Are you talking uh, adolescence? Are you talking early adulthood? And that you know you don't have to necessarily get too personal, but give me give me a, a little bit more of an idea as to where you are going back and spending three hours in 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 your in your in your past life. I don't know. I don't remember much. My <laughs> well, then, well, then, well, then, wouldn't wouldn't that wouldn't that be kind of cool to go back and and yeah, and, I, and relive three hours when you were five years old? Well, I think I think if I went back, I'd want to go back to about the same age as my daughter now to see to kind of re to re look at like what I was like at nine years, eight, nine years old. Um, I think yeah, that I, would be. I think that would be really so not because there's some remarkable thing happening there, but I just would love to see, I think we're very different people. So I would love to be able to compare what a pain in the ass I was <laughs> to like the beautiful creature she is who can't walk downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think that's actually, I, I think that's actually quite an extraordinary uh, answer and one that I, I haven't heard before though, to, uh, to go back and spend three hours at the same age that your daughter is now. Right? I just think yeah. to appreciate, mm. appreciate it a little bit because I don't know. I, I think we, I think I, I went through growing up, not a happy camper. My, I'm a happy person now because I like learned all about psychological places. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But For like sure. I grew up very, very sad misunderstood little human being. So I think to be able to go back and kind of look at that maybe from a different perspective to, I think it would help me understand who I am now. Mm, I think that's um, really, and also just to see the differences between my daughter and I would be just so cool. Cause I'd want to go back and view it, not to be that person. Would I be going back like, um, like Scrooge? No. Uh, well, I guess I'm not, I'm you not like thinking, no, I'm, like I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, back to the future type thing where, where you, you're just going back and observing your observing earlier. Okay, yes. Good. 
yes, you, you can't necessarily impact anything that happened, but you're just you're just observing that yes. three hours in time, watching, yeah, watch like almost like a ghost. Uh, I think I'd appreciate yourself. my parents so much more. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's also a good point too, right? Uh, be, having now having the perspective of being a parent yourself. Yes. Right. Be like, oh, um, bless you, mom and dad, because. Holly, this this conversation has been has, has been extraordinary. Uh, I've been looking forward to having you on the show for quite some time, and, and for definitely, me. yeah, this definitely dis, didn't disappoint. Thank you again for for being okay. on the show. Okay, thank you, thank you for having me. It was great. The idea that mental toughness and self compassion are not opposing forces is such an incredibly important belief to hold. And knowing when and in what manner to apply them really is the key to using both concepts effectively. I'm so grateful for Holly's perspective on these matters. Now, I was trained as an exercise physiologist, yet to be an effective professional endurance coach, it's imperative to have a deep understanding of and an appreciation for the mental side of sport. Well, if you liked what you heard, please consider giving the show a follow. And if you really liked what you heard, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn, so please make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.